This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with former Utah governor and U.S. ambassador to Russia, Singapore, and China, Mr. John Huntsman Jr. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance coach, where each and every week, I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. Thanks for spending some time with me today. In this episode, John Huntsman Jr. shares his life and commitment to public service as a Utah governor and as our United States ambassador to Russia and China, giving us an inside glimpse of how the world of diplomacy affects our ongoing Cold Wars and what we as United States citizens need to know about the global political scene. Please welcome my friend, my hero, legitimately, John Huntsman Jr. Thanks for joining me, my friend. Dan, I'll tell you, you really make somebody sound like a winner with that kind of wind-up and introduction. My goodness, I hardly deserve that. Well, let's just talk about something that's so intriguing. The three Ps, passion, preparation, and pursuit. I don't know if anyone else on the planet who was a better spokesperson just through your life in, in identifying and triggering passion, preparation, and pursuit of that passion than anyone else other than John Huntsman Jr. So let's just get right to a key question. So you've been ambassador three times. You've been a governor. You've been a CEO of a major gajillion-dollar corporation. And I want to ask you what qualities, what character traits, what leadership principles, governing principles, do you believe have been common in each one of your amazing leadership roles? Well, Dan, thank you for that. And listen, I'm no different than a whole lot of other people, whether you are managing or responsible for big high profile organizations or whether you're a teacher in the classroom, whether you're a a law enforcement officer on patrol, Um, whatever you might be, uh, you have a responsibility to define the parameters of leadership in your own unique world. And uh, for me, you know, first of all, I've had the good fortune of looking to others around me over my lifetime to identify leaders uh, and their style uh, and their approach to doing things, whether, you know, it's been Jack Welch from General Electric, who I got to know many, many years ago. Uh, and have spoken with him on a couple of panels during his lifetime. He passed away just recently. Uh, Whether it was Alan Mulally, who was CEO of Ford Motor Company, who brought me on to the board of directors of Ford for many years, and I learned from him around the boardroom table. Um, Whether it was George Shultz, Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, who was probably one of the greatest secretaries of state we've ever had. General Joe Dunford, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who I worked with most recently while uh, while in in Russia. Whether world leaders like Nandra Modi in India, uh, who was a friend, or Lee Kuan Yew, who founded Singapore, all of these people and so many more, Amy Gutman, who was one of the great leaders in higher education, they, they've they've all uh, exemplified leadership, and I've had the good fortune of watching and learning from them. And so some of what you learn about leadership is innate to who you are. Uh, some of it is acquired through your experiences in life and just kind of observing others. So through it all, 
you know what I've come to find, Dan, more than anything else? Leadership in its rawest form is the ability to influence others. Because if you can't influence others through how you live your life or how you run an organization, you fail fundamentally as a leader. And leadership also, in terms of your ability to influence others, comes from experience with adversity. Because understanding failure and how to bounce back, uh, because leaders aren't made at the during the good times or when things are rolling only in their favor. Leaders are made when the chips are down and when you have to roll up your sleeves and motivate an organization and pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. And I, I was thinking just most recently running the embassy in Moscow, which is one of the most sensitive and high profile embassies anywhere in the world based on what goes on there operationally. And, you know, you lead a team of highly educated, trained, motivated professionals. They are military, they are intelligence, they are foreign service, and they represent, you know, a couple dozen U.S. government agencies right across the board. You know, we we were faced with the most extreme number of expulsions by the Russian government during the two years that I was there. They were kicking our people out right and left. They cut our embassy significantly. They closed down uh, our consulate in St. Petersburg. So try running uh, a very sensitive national security operation, in a sense, behind enemy lines, because that's where you're working in Moscow, trying to do all the work and do what needs to be done based on the interests of the United States. And you have your key offices gutted by 70%, yet you still have to keep doing the same work. You have families separated and divided. You have people who are given literally hours notice before they're kicked out of the country. Uh, this is this is wow. where people begin to work at their best. And it's where leadership is really defined. And it's where you as a leader really kind of come to grips with what you have within you to lead. And uh, it's a combination of having a vision of where you want that organization to go. What's the pathway ahead? A leader has got to see around the bend. You've got to know in that moment where you want to be, where is the promised land. And unless you can lead out that team, any team, based on empowerment, based upon passion, based upon elements of simplicity, because if people don't understand what it is you're saying, nobody's going to be able to follow. Whether it is leadership based on humility or openness or indeed a whole lot of love, because people can feel in your heart if you're sincere or not when you're trying to lead them. All of that matters when you're trying to lead an organization. So uh, throughout my life in, in, in running different organizations and trying to manage people, whether in government service, whether in not-for-profit uh, enterprises, uh, or whether in for-profit enterprises, it kind of comes down to the same basic principles of leadership. It, it isn't that complicated. Unless you can influence others through your actions, you're not going to lead people anywhere. So then you got to back up it. and say, how is it that I influence? And how do you influence based on love, passion, simplicity, empowerment, wrapped in a vision. So those are the five governing principles that have made you stand out in every crowd. So let me ask you, so you've selected service before self as apparently as your 
bottom line governing motivator. When did you first identify your leadership style as service above and before self? You know, I, I think it goes all the way back to uh, my my family and relatives. I, I come from uh, a long line of uh, naval officers. And whether it was my dad, his brothers, both my grandfathers, my uncles, they they all served in World War II and beyond. So growing up, it didn't matter whether we were visiting relatives in the Bay Area of California or in Fillmore, Utah, which is really the, the home seat for the Huntsman family traditionally. When people would get together and talk about what mattered most in life, it was never about wanting to make a lot of money because nobody had any money back in those days. There was no Huntsman Corporation. There was no you know, Huntsman Foundation, no cancer, and nothing. It was just, you know, a bunch of stragglers with the last name Huntsman. The, the thing that mattered most to these good men, and they were mostly men because they were the only ones who served in that kind of capacity back in those days, was what they had done for their country and what they had done for other people. Nothing else mattered. When we had spare moments in front of the fireplace and my grandfather Huntsman's simple little home, that's what he would reflect on and that's what he would talk about. And I, I would look at the simple tokens of his life that he had in his living room. And they were all representative of service. He was a school teacher himself. He was an educator. And for him, that was the most important thing anybody could do for other people. But in his life, it was that service the country. And it didn't quite sort of resonate at, you know, seven, eight, ten years old as it did later on. But the seeds were planted. Uh, those stories were told about what really mattered most. My uncles, you know, getting a battlefield promotion, you know, doing this or that to help, you know, serve the country. They were the lessons of life that, for me, always sort of caused me to focus most on, okay, what can you do to help give something back, in this case, to your country or your community? And I would say, Dan, whether because you're a great example of this, too, and you've been around other great examples, you know, people are raised with different experiences, with sort of different priorities. In many senses, it's all about service. And, and those seeds are planted early on and people's lives are shaped forever based upon those simple early lessons. And I have to say, it probably goes back to those early examples in my family. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me, probably my last book published by Penguin, Art of Significance, on the back cover, I have an amazing little recommendation blurb written by your sweet father, who was a hero to so many. And he sure was. Legacy he's left behind, and I still remember the interview that he that he granted me, saying exactly what you have said. You're echoing your your father and uh, his influence on on our community and on the entire world. So, you know, there's a great song. It was written by me. That's why I said that, brother. And it's called <laughs> Special Man. And the lyrical hook says any male can be a father, but it takes a special man to be a dad. I'd be reminisced, John, if you didn't have a chance to brag on your children for a moment. Because in an, in an affluent family, 
Um, we we have tendencies across the globe in every single culture to have a sense of entitlement, to to feel like, oh, you know, this is good. You know, I'm just going to take the easy road. And in the Huntsman clan, that is nowhere to be found, especially in your family, because I know, intimately know uh, your, your, your children. Could you just share how this service before self attitude and commitment to our country and to, to our communities has actually taken hold in your own children? Uh, just wave your flag. Let's start with your two sons. Please just tell the world a little teeny bit about what they're up to and how proud we all need to be of them. Well, Dan, it's you're so you're so kind to point that out. It's it's hard for Dad to talk about uh, kids. You know, you you love all you love all, all kids, and uh, and you hope and wish the best for them. In uh, in our own lives, um, we have been bound by the whole notion of service, service to community, service to country. That is the greatest aspiration one can have. And it isn't about material positions. Uh, life is not for slacking. Uh, life is not a dress rehearsal. It is the real thing. Every day counts. Every moment counts. And what you choose to do in life is an important selection because that will determine how you then are able to give back. And the skills that you uh, derive from education or life's experiences and the people and the networks you come in contact with who will further influence you. So gladly, our, our kids uh, have, have been influenced uh, not, not, by a, not by a questionable dad like me, but by a lot of people who have, been, who, who have been in our immediate universe. Mm -hmm. And since our life has been about service, um, they have been influenced by law enforcement, by teachers, by military by people who are out serving communities. So in, in, in our positions, you, you can't, for example, be governor of a state. And, and so I, I found that your you know, kids who grow up in a governor's mansion, you know, generally do one of two things. One, they rebel and they do just the opposite. Or two, uh, they take in a lot of what's around you. And what is around you are people always serving and doing good, doing things for their community. And, and I would say that all of our kids were influenced by people who were not big names in the community, uh, not making big salaries, uh, but were doing some of the most important work for uh, their fellow citizens. And I think that maybe uh, probably had some rub off effect on them. No, I love it. So Naval officers, service, television personalities, anywhere where they take their platform, their influence and, and, multiply exponentially multiply their ability to serve others and i guess that's really you know your legacy you know the legacy of john huntsman jr is the ripple effect that you've created that will far outlast your life and your your election service uh, i just i can't say enough about that so let's get to the second p john who inspired you to prepare and what did you specifically do? And, and, and you brought up the nightmare, the challenge, the daily 
you know, challenge of running the embassy in Russia. Will you please give us an inside scoop on the Chinese embassy when you were ambassador to China? Maybe comparison contrast both of those experiences because they had to be similar, but they had to be drastically different. And, uh, and maybe share a story that talks about what prepared you for those leadership responsibilities. You know, it's it's hard to know what in your life is is going to is going to prepare you most for uh, uh, any one event. I think it's a combination of things. It's everything from being raised uh, in in a great family, uh, being a Boy Scout, running for class office, failing, uh, playing in a band, working hard as a dishwasher as a kid, you know, because the work ethic was always stressed by my dad (laughs) from well before 16. It was work, 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 work. Um, it's It's a combination of a whole lot of things that that put you in the driver's seat, maybe before you know it. And leaders then rise or fall based upon what they have been exposed to up up to that moment. And when a leader rises, I think it's a combination of the the external experiences that they've dragged through life that 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 give them the the skills, let's call it the street smarts, where they can they can deal with a certain set of uh, conditions. That's probably combined with whatever uh, good uh, uh, innate talents you might uh, you might have brought along. So you know, in the Huntsman line, we've got a lot of you know crazy genes. You know, as as uh, one of my relatives said early on, Huntsmans either wind up in prison or they wind up doing really interesting things. <laughs> and, and there there may be there may be some some truth to that. But uh, I have I have found uh, just watching, you know. Uh, my own dad, as he was building a corporation that sometimes did well, sometimes hit the wall and came very close to failure. I mean, I the lessons of life for me in learning about leadership were around a family uh, table, a small business that ultimately became a big business where we were all pulling in the same direction, where we didn't know sometimes where the next line of credit was going to come from, where we didn't know if the next recession was going to completely collapse our business, uh, where you really had to rely on customer relations uh, and a hope that they would extend their contracts on raw materials or a certain product in order for you to stay in business. Uh, And so it was adversity always knocking on your door. And I think the that really resulted in all of us who were part of that experience, certainly a couple of my brothers and I, uh, in in uh, in a great word called resilience, because my my dad always used to say, you know, no, really means yes if you're an optimist, because everyone <laughs> in life is gonna everyone in life is gonna tell you no when you're starting a business. Every banker is going to say, are you kidding me? That's the worst business idea ever. Of course, we're not going to finance you. And then when you get the business started, your customers are going to say, no, I've been doing business with a name brand for too long. I'm not going to go with some startup company. Of course not. So we were all trained early on that, you know, no really meant yes. And that, adversi- and that adversity sometimes brings out the best in the human condition and the human spirit. So. In a sense, I was raised in conditions that 
from the outside might have looked always copacetic and, and bright, you know, never a dull moment, but they were not around <laughs> in the early days when things were getting off the ground and when we encountered some enormously difficult challenges and pushback, uh, a lot of debt and a lot of leverage and moments where we were pretty sure that we were going to hit the wall and we'd have zero left, uh, a, a lot of that. And so that that makes for a person who sometimes yearns for difficult moments for adversity and and difficult conditions externally because that's when things become interesting that's when that's when the 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 tough people really get going and i remember in our own businesses when the times were good you know my old man would say oh geez this is so boring you know business is so boring you know i wish those bad days were on us again today because that's when your your heartbeat gets going and your your imagination gets ticking and all the great ideas start flowing and uh, and so and so at that those are kind of the conditions that 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 shape me so when a president asks you to go to a place like china and everyone says are you kidding? That's the craziest thing in the world. Why would you do that? You know, that's a surefire disaster. That's when you reflect on those old examples and you say, no, you do it because it's hard. You do it because this is what the human condition was built for. This is what your experiences in life are all about. And later on, when the president told, asked if I would go to Russia, uh, you know, everyone around me said, are you kidding? That's the craziest in, in today's world going to Russia. Not only is it a dangerous, but b it's a political dead end. You're just going to get clobbered. And uh, no, it was that sort of sense of resilience inside. And you know, the best days are when it's cloudy outside. Uh, when I told the president, "Sure, if it's important to you, if it's important to the country, we will go serve in the most difficult, most awful diplomatic post in the world in today's environment." And and, and we did. And they were They're the best amazing. best couple of years, I think we've ever experienced. And in China, they were some of the best years as well, not because it was easy, but because it was, it was some of the toughest damn work we've ever done. I love it. I love it. And interesting that uh, statistics, you brought up something so, so critically important. I want to share with my listeners. Statistics show that 85% of family owned businesses are bankrupt and non-existent by the third generation. And the reason why is because they do not subscribe to the original core values that the grandfather, great-grandfather, or father subscribed to that really built the business, you know, sacrifice, work ethic, heart, you know, service before self. And the Huntsman clan, you've, you've proven that statistic completely wrong. You have maintained that amazing uh, uh, plethora menu of these core values. And I just wanted to point that out to the listeners that that's why I believe that you were called by a president, not of your specific registered political uh, party to go serve our country and represent every American in China. Holy cow. So, can I put you on the spot? Was there one specific situation that you can recall off the top of your head in China that tested you to the core values on which you were raised? 
Well, every day, uh, every day was a challenge in China because you're dealing with what is more or less an adversarial kind of relationship. The outside world, particularly if you're in the business community, you know, the, the relationship with China is friendly and we engage and we work together. And in a perfect set of circumstances, that's exactly what it should be. But in a government to government context, in a country to country context at the official level, it's a very, very competitive relationship, which is to say that, you know, we spy on them and they spy on us and we run reconnaissance missions against them and they do it against us and we are aggressive. So most people never see this, but you know, when you're there running the United States embassy, you're in the captain seat, you know, you get, you get a daily view of what all of this means and, and how, uh, and how good it can be in terms of what we learn, but how dangerous it can be because it can throw you into, it can throw you into a topspin pretty quickly when things go uh, out of whack. And you remember that from the, the EP3 spy plane that went down in Hainan Island and and I think it was 2000, oh, 2001, yeah. uh, because our our one of our reconnaissance planes was clipped by by a, a by a Chinese uh, F-10 jet, and the jet went down into the ocean, killed the pilot, and miraculously, our naval reconnaissance plane was able to make an emergency landing in China, where they held the crew for two or three weeks. And uh, and discovered a treasure trove of uh, of codes and intelligence notebooks that were not destroyed on the plane. Uh, th this kind of thing goes on on a regular basis, and most of it never is seen by the the public at large. But we went through some episodes that were pretty harrowing uh, in our own right. I mean, some maybe are to be written about in the years to, <laughs> in the years to come when I can do that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, There'll and be a movie are, made about you. There'll be a movie made about you. Yeah, right. Like right, you, right, like I, you understood on on your 60th birthday roast. Yeah, they're gonna think you're George Clooney, or maybe he'll yeah, display you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> but uh, but but there there were there were some really tough moments where they they absolutely luck out uh, our our diplomatic interaction. Um, they freeze the U.S. ambassador in place when we do something not to their liking. When we sell arms to Taiwan, for example, when our president meets with the Dalai Lama, when we sail our naval ships into sensitive areas in the South China Sea, everything is taken out on the United States ambassador. And uh, you'll get a call oh sometimes from the, from the foreign ministry at two in the morning uh, demanding that you appear at the foreign ministry for uh, a dress down. And uh, that that's a way of giving uh, for uh, uh, a, a way to publicly humiliate you uh, and uh, a way to try to embarrass you. Uh, and the, the typical way that they show their superiority in in in, in certain instances. And then they will oh. freeze you out. Uh, you will be locked uh, out of any meetings. You will be frozen from travel. You will be unable to interact with any Chinese official. And uh, this can go on interminably you know, based upon our bad behavior. And as the Chinese see it, we're always engaging in bad behavior, stuff that they don't like. Oh. And uh, but uh, there 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 was uh, there was uh, one incident where. Um, and listen, the, the 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 U.S. mission in China is probably among the biggest in the world. We have we have a couple of thousand people uh, who are uh, part of the U.S. embassy staff in five different consulates around that mammoth country, and they're wow. doing every aspect of work you can think of. So the managerial 
responsibility all by itself is enormous because it's just like a, a large corporation that you're running. And every day you're plowing through, uh, you know, a range of issues from the traditional diplomatic intelligence security right on through to to uh, a pandemic disease or Federal Aviation Administration or IRS related issues. It, you know, it, it's it's a microcosm of the U.S. government that, that uh, we're running. But I, but I remember on one occasion. Uh, right after the Arab Spring, where there was uh, real sensitivity about the United States engaging in uh, in in called Jasmine revolutions, planting seeds in foreign countries that would topple governments that we didn't like, and uh, and I was caught up in one such situation. You can go on the internet and take a look at it, where I, I wandered into. Uh, uh, a part of Beijing where it was thought that there were uh, local Chinese who were protesting and beginning one such Jasmine uprising. And uh, and I appeared in every newspaper, on every newscast uh, in China oh, and well beyond. Gosh. And and they banned my name from the Internet uh, in in China because my Chinese my Chinese name and my English name were synonymous with revolution. Uh, and uh, oh my gosh. and it. It created major turmoil uh, for me and uh, and for our, our United States embassy because they were absolutely convinced that we were spreading revolution and trying to topple the Chinese government as part of a, a broader plot. So things get really, really intense, and uh, the work is enormously interesting, and there's never a dull moment. And believe me, between Russia and China, if you're a baseball player, you want to play in Yankee Stadium, right? Uh, if you're a diplomat or if you're in the intelligence world, you want to work in the embassies in, in Moscow and Beijing because the work does not get any better. Oh, my gosh. Well, that brings us to the, the final P, the three Ps that, that are required to become a power player, and that is pursuit. And uh, you are relentless. So I want to consolidate kind of two questions into, into to one to solicit, to solicit your answer. So I want to know why you remain motivated to keep serving. Haven't you done enough? One of the coolest things that all of the listeners need to understand is the power of your partnership with Mary Kay, whom we all adore and love. And it's almost like a joint calling because she's such a natural ambassador of all the five things you've talked about, love and throwing in integrity and, and service and all the other things that we we've talked about on this interview, but you know, enough is enough. Okay, John, why don't you take off your shafts? Why don't you hang up your cleats? Why don't you come back to Utah? Just chill out. Maybe go snowboarding, hop on your motocross bike, just <laughs> chill out. But all of a sudden you rise again. You, you're this Phoenix saying, no, no, we, we still have more to go. You know, you want, you don't want to climb. You don't want to die at the base of the mountain. You want to die while climbing. So, Part one of the question is, how do you stay motivated to pursue this passion of service before self? And then tying it into the final question, my friend, you know, uh, Professor Randy Powell, she was famous for, for coining that phrase last lecture. You know, he's battling cancer and he recorded this, this talk yeah. for his three girls that they could watch when he was passed after he passed away. So here's the, here's the premise, my friend, if you had one day to live. What's your consolidated message to the world that also explains why you just keep on serving? Well, for, first of all, in answer to your 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 first your first question, Dan, 
uh, Mary Kay, my beloved wife, who you referenced very appropriately, would never let me off the hook if I hung up my cleats. She's the first <laughs> one to say, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to keep doing what you should do to, to help and, uh, and to serve. Listen, it, life is, is not a dress rehearsal. And the passing of my dad a couple of years ago, for me, was a reminder that life sometimes is shorter than expected, that you have a situation where every day and every year count, and you're not to waste any of it. And that's not to say you become compulsive to any strange degree, but it means that in life you have a choice. And Teddy Roosevelt talked about this, and when my two sons went to the Naval Academy, and when they were plebes, they were lower than dirt, as they call them, you know, their plebe year, their very first year. One of the first things they had to do, Dan, was to memorize Man in the Arena by Theodore oh, Roosevelt, it. and read it, read it, read it, and reread it, because it's great inspiration, and it talks about those in the arena, and uh, the price one pays of being in the arena, as compared to those cold, timid souls on the outside who know neither victory nor defeat, because that's mm. not what makes life, and that's not what makes leadership, and that's not what makes community. That's not what makes communities go. So, as my old man used to say, we all get a tombstone at the end of life, and it's up to you to determine exactly the one or two words on that tombstone that will define you. It's not they. They won't define themselves. And it's not going to be a blank slate. You have to define those two or three words on your tombstone. And, uh, you know, I certainly hope that at least among the two or three words for, for me, service will be one of them. And uh, that means you give it your all until your very last breath. That's just the that's just the way that's just the way we were we were raised and the way that we view life, all, all of us in, in the Huntsman clan. So for your Johnny, Johnny Carson, his, uh, his tombstone says, I'll be right back. So it's kind of in the same, <laughs> same flavor as, as yours. <laughs> that's exactly right. But I'll tell you when, you know, in this last year, um, before we uh, returned from Moscow, you know, my dad had passed the year before we have eight grandkids. Now I've got two sons out serving active duty, uh, military assignments, and I got a cancer diagnosis. Um, oh, I had no idea. Yeah, oh. it, stage one, uh, stage one melanoma, and it was perfectly treatable. And uh, the sad commentary on this one, Dan, is sometimes we talk about mental health and the toll it's taking on on society. The the great doctor, the oncologist who diagnosed my melanoma and who cut a sizable gash out of the side side of my face and the back of my leg, uh, just committed suicide within the last few weeks. And it's oh, one of these, oh, yeah, it's one of these sad, sad things where even those who are riding at the top of their game, it's uh, like, you know, in inside the heart is sometimes hidden sorrow that the eye can't see. And it's another reason that, that running for governor, this go around, mental health is, is one of my headline issues that we're going to tackle to the best of our ability. With but on that $150 million family donation that we thank you for, which will affect the entire world. Well, the last lecture, so. brother. What, what are you going to say? So you have one day to live. So teach. What are you going to so, teach, yeah. teach your old buddy Dan and everybody else? <laughs> that that is, is such a profoundly powerful uh, setup, and uh, and I'm so inadequate in my ability to be able to deliver on it. But 
I would probably have to say something like, you know, the old Julius Caesar phrase that the greatest teacher in life is is experience. Uh, that that's what we all want to gather because experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And ex- <laughs> and experience. Repeat that, never, please repeat that. Repeat that. Yeah, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. Wow. Right? Don't you find that to be the case? Absolutely. And and experience never comes out unless we get out of bed and we put on our shoes and try. But you know what? Many never try. And this is the last lecture kind of thing. And why don't people try? Because they fear failure. They fear that they might lose. They fear that they might be embarrassed or humiliated or go bankrupt. So the bottom line, imagine what we might accomplish, all of us, if we took fear out of our minds and fear out of our decision-making process. So managing fear becomes uh, central to anything that we achieve because fear is the only thing that stands in the way of ultimately our gaining experience, which is the greatest teacher in life. So how many of us fail on the fear factor uh, or the experience factor because we simply allow fear to stand in the way? So if there's one thing you want to leave folks reflecting on that might make their lives a little bit better, I think it's you exclude fear completely from your decision-making process. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest has been John Huntsman, Jr., one of the more prolific public servants in our generation, perhaps in the history of America because of his service as ambassador in three different countries, the only ambassador who's been the ambassador of both China and Russia, serving under five administrations, and as you promised, good brother, you are so far from retirement, and we love you for that. We honor you in advance. So as I close out, remember, my friends, when you finally decide to be a power player, your power play begins in you so eloquently explained by John Huntsman Jr. So until next time, quantify your takeaway and go make a power play. Thanks, my dear friend, and God bless you and your family. God bless America. Thank you, Dan. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.